Have you ever had a case of stage fright? You have to say something in front of people or fulfill some particular role in front of a group, and you get up, and the light, lights come on, the curtains are drawn back, and you find yourself unable to say anything. It's stage fright, and a lot of people have a fear of stage fright. Did you know that the number one fear among Americans is the fear of getting up and talking in front of people? It's a, it's a major fear that people have. Well, this morning we're going to look at a man in the Old Testament that had a, a case of stage fright. He was called by God to be the first king of Israel. When the time came for him to take his place of leadership, he was nowhere to be found. And we'll see this in 1 Samuel chapter 10. So turn there with me as we continue our study through this Old Testament book. 1 Samuel chapter 10. We'll begin reading in verse 1. I want to ask you this morning if you're physically able to please stand with me in honor of the reading of the Word of God. The Bible says, Then Samuel took the flask of oil, poured it on his head, that his head being Saul, kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you a ruler over his inheritance? Now skip down with me to verse 17. Thereafter, Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah. He said to the sons of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought Israel up from Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the power of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But you have today rejected your God, who delivers you from all your calamities and your distresses. Yet you have said, No, but set a king over us. Now therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your clans. Thus Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. Then he brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its families, and the Matrite family was taken. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken. But when they looked for him, he could not be found. Therefore they inquired further of the Lord, Has the man come here yet? So the Lord said, Behold, he is hiding himself by the baggage. Hiding himself by the baggage. Let's bow our heads and pray together. Father, we pause to confess our need for you. Lord, we believe with all of our hearts that all is vain unless the Spirit of the Holy One comes down. Holy Spirit, we need you to work in our midst, to open the eyes of our hearts, that we might see the truths of Scripture and learn them in such a way that we might apply them and obey them. Father, I pray that you would just have your way in our midst, that you would, that you would transform us. God, I pray that our Monday will be different because of what happened in this room today. Will you work in such a way that you get all of the glory? It's all about you. Lord, I ask you to establish my steps in your word today, and we ask and pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. As we begin our journey through the book of 1 Samuel, we saw that the nation of Israel was living in dark times, a time of utter lawlessness and rebellion against God due in large part to the, to the spiritual leadership of Israel. They were ruled by, by wicked men, Hophni and Phinehas, who had a passive father named Eli who did not intervene. And so God graciously intervenes on behalf of his people. He removes the, 
wicked spiritual leadership and raises up a new leader named Samuel. And things were going well. Israel was a theocracy. God would tell Samuel what to say, and Samuel would tell the people. And as they obeyed God and sought God, God would bless them and protect them and give them great victories. Things were going okay, but Samuel grew older, and his sons proved to be dishonest leaders. And so the people gathered together and said, Samuel, you're getting older. Your sons are ungodly, so we need a new method of leadership. And so we want to have a king like all the nations around us have a king. And Samuel was displeased by that. He thought, saw it as, uh, as evil. And the Lord said, Samuel, don't worry. They're not rejecting your leadership. They're rejecting my authority over them. By them wanting to have an earthly king to rally behind, they were rejecting the theocracy. They were rejecting God as their ultimate king and authority. But God's going to teach them a very important and very valuable lesson. God's going to give them what they want. So God says, okay, we'll give them a king and see how that goes for them. And some might expect that after God made that decision, just give them what they want, he would just withdraw from the situation, throw his hands in the air, and kind of be through with the nation of Israel. But that's not what happens at all. Even though God's going to give them what they want, God is still going to be involved in the process. As a matter of fact, God's going to be the one that names the first king of Israel. That's what we find in chapter 9. Uh, God arranging providentially for Saul to look to, to meet Samuel and and God preparing Samuel to know that this one he would meet would be the first king of Israel. He brings them together through a set of providential circumstances. And then uh, in chapter 10, we see that Samuel names Saul king. As a matter of fact, the first time he tells him he's going to be king, it's a private conversation there in verse 1. He says to him privately. The servant is, 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 is told to move on ahead at the end of chapter 9. Privately, Saul, you're going to be the first king of Israel. But then at the end of chapter 10, there's a very public ceremony where God's going to use lots to show the people that, that Saul is the one that he wanted to be king. And so they cast lots, and God's working through that. And a certain tribe is taken, Benjamin, then a certain family in the tribe is taken. And then as they cast lots, Saul is named by God to be that first king. And say, okay, where's Saul? And he's nowhere to be found. As a matter of fact, only God could find Saul because they had to ask the Lord, where is Saul? And the Lord said, he's over there hiding in the baggage. Saul was reluctant to serve God in the role that God had called him to serve in. Saul is a picture of reluctance. And, and we can see a little of ourselves in Saul, can't we? There, there, there are times in our lives when, when God gives us an opportunity to serve. And we're reluctant to step through that door of opportunity. We're reluctant to serve him. And so what I want to do is I want to look at Saul and learn from his reluctance and look at some truths in the text that can help us to overcome that reluctance and get in the game. One of the problems with the American church today is we have too many people who are spectators only. They're watching, they're cheering, they're, you know, they're for what's going on, but they're not actually in the game. They're reluctant to actually serve. Now, there are many different reasons people are reluctant to serve God. Let me just give you four of these this morning, if you look there on your notes. One reason is just apathy. I mean, just people are busy with life, and they've got other priorities, and because they've got so much going on, and, and the Lord is low on their priority list, they just don't serve. They're just apathetic. 
to serving God and living for His glory. Some, some of you may be here this morning and say, well, I'm just apathetic. I just, I just don't want to do anything. Uh, no good reason. I just don't want to serve. Some people don't serve God because of fear. They're reluctant to serve God because they're fearful of what that might mean for their life. They, they, they don't trust God for what it might mean to, to surrender to Him and serve Him in a certain role or capacity. And, and that fear is, is paralyzing. It's, it's stage fright. It keeps them from, from taking the, the, the role that God has for them. Another one, and this is big, is what I call feelings of incompetence. I have nothing to offer God. I don't know what other people know. I don't have the personality other people have. And so surely I I can't be used by God. And they just feel incompetent for the task. And they never get in the game because of their overwhelming sense of incompetence. And then fourth, this is big in the church today, a lot of people don't serve because of the someone else syndrome. Someone else will do it. I see this need. I see something needs to be done, but someone else will get around to it. Someone else will surely do it. And people miss out on opportunity after opportunity to serve God because they're just waiting on someone else. Sure, our church needs this. Sure, our community needs that. But someone else will do it. And as we all wait on someone else, guess what? It doesn't get done. So there are many different reasons, even those that I have not named, that, that cause us to be reluctant to serve, that cause us to hide in the proverbial baggage like Saul. When we have an opportunity to step through that door that God's opened for us, an opportunity to serve him for his glory, we are hiding in the baggage, missing God's destiny, God's will, God's way, God's best for our lives. So here's the question. How do you overcome that reluctance to serve? What I want to do this morning is I want to look in this text of Scripture, chapter 10, and I want us to to, to learn some truths, and I want us to learn to ask ourselves six questions. The next time you are reluctant to serve, for whatever reason, I want you to ask yourself these six questions. And as you ask these questions and then answer them biblically, you can be propelled or give the confidence you need to serve God. So let's just walk through these six questions together. Here's question number one. The next time you're reluctant to serve, all right, next time you have a case of spiritual stage fright or just spiritual laziness, here's a question you need to ask yourself. Will God give me assurance as I serve him? Will God give me assurance as I serve him? We see in this text that God graciously gives Saul specific signs that would encourage him in the direction God had sent him. Look what it says there in verse 1 of chapter 10. Samuel takes a flask of oil, pours it on his head, which is a symbol of anointing, God's presence on his life, God's power on his life. He kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you a ruler over his inheritance? When you go from me today, then you will find two men close to Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah. And they will say to you, The donkeys which you went to look for have been found. Now, behold, your father ceased to be concerned about the donkeys and is anxious for you saying what shall i do about my son then you will go on further from there and you will come as far as the oak of tabor and there three men going up to god at bethel will meet you one carrying three young goats another carrying three loaves of bread another carrying a jug of wine they're going to worship the lord at bethel verse four and they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread which you will accept from their hand what's samuel doing here samuel's giving 
Saul some very specific predictions. It's as if he's saying, Saul, to prove to you that God's in this, when you leave here, this is what's going to happen. And notice this isn't general. It doesn't say you're just going to meet some men along the roadway. It says you're going to meet some men. They're going to say something very specific to you. You're going to meet two men. They're going to talk to you about your father being worried. You're going to meet three men. They're going to give you two loaves of bread. Notice the specificity here. And these specific predictions are meant to encourage Saul and, and show him, hey, God is in this. God is, is with you. God is guiding you. God is assuring you that you are indeed the, the first king of Israel. I think it's interesting to note how God graciously provides these signs to give Saul the confidence that he needs as he takes on this role, this huge role of being the king. Now, while we should not base our service solely on signs, let me unpack that for a moment. A lot of people are waiting for some kind of some kind of, you know, lightning bolt from heaven, chill bumps, warm fuzzy, some sort of experience and that's why when you ask people to serve, they say, well, let me pray about it. And what they're saying is, I'm going to, I'm going to pray, and if God doesn't do something just really, really dramatic, then I must, I must not need to serve in this role. What they're saying is, I, I need a sign. And, and people, a lot of times, never get the game because they're waiting for the warm fuzzies. They're waiting for the emotional experience, and, and it never comes. Sometimes, when there's a need and you're available, that's all the sign you need. Amen? It's all the calling you need to jump in and serve God. I mean, there's a need, you're a Christian, and, and you ought to serve. And, and, and try to meet that need for his glory. But, but while we should not base our service solely on signs, we should recognize that God will often give us some assurances that we are going in the right direction. God does that. When you step out in faith, when you step out to serve him, God will, will graciously along the path give you some, some assurance that you're going in the right direction. It's like you know Hansel and Gretel leaving the breadcrumbs to, to, to let people know they're going in the right direction as they follow them. God will often do that in our lives. Now, what are some assurances that God gives us today? How does God assure us and encourage us along the path he has laid out for us? Well, let me just give you several thoughts here. Number one, encouragement from others is a sign and assurance that God will use. Look in verse 26 of 1 Samuel 10, the end of the chapter. Verse 26. They have this public ceremony. They find Saul in the baggage. They bring him out, and they name him the first king of Israel. It says in verse 26, Saul also went to his house at Gibeah, and the valiant men whose hearts God had touched went with him. Now, don't you think that was encouraging to Saul? He's the first king. He goes home. He looks behind him. There's some men with him, some valiant men, some brave and some courageous men. These are like special forces. They're, they're, they're with him as the first king of Israel. And I can imagine how that encouraged him, the encouragement of others. I heard one leadership expert say that if you think you're a leader and you look behind you and no one's following, you're just out for a walk. And Saul was going home, and he looks behind him, and there are actually some people supporting him, some people encouraging him. And, and that was an encouragement for him as he took on the role of king of Israel. And God will often use others in our lives to give us that assurance that we need that we're headed in the right direction. As a matter of fact, that's how God has designed the body of Christ to work. Think about Hebrews chapter 10 where it says that we are to, to assemble together so that we can encourage one another and spur one another on to love and to good deeds. Our job is to encourage you to say, hey, you're on the right path. God is using you. God is using you in magnificent ways. Keep on keeping on. 
And sometimes when we step out in faith and serve God and, and we, we're, we're moving forward with fear and trepidation, that, that word of encouragement can mean so much, can't it? That's why you could make the case that maybe the most important leader in the book of Acts with the New Testament church was Barnabas. His name means encouragement, son of encouragement. You say, well, why would he be the most important leader? Because at key moments in the, the redemptive story of the New Testament church, Barnabas shows up to, to help people towards their God-given role and destiny. He's the one that brings Saul into public ministry. He's the one that goes to Antioch and sees the grace of God there and relays that to the church in Jerusalem. He's the one that takes John Mark under his wing when Paul was through with John Mark. Paul said, I'm through with you. John Mark left us on the last missionary journey. He's not going with me anymore. He's a quitter. Barnabas says, I'll take him with me. He encourages him. And at the end of Paul's ministry in 2 Timothy, Paul says, bring to me John Mark. He's useful to me. Barnabas kept John Mark in the game, and, and he was used mightily by God, even being used by God to write one of the Gospels. Barnabas was an encourager, and that encouragement is like glue that, that helps the, the church of Jesus Christ in the New Testament stick together and fulfill God's role for them. And so God can use encouragement from others to give us the assurance that we need. Also, fruitfulness. Fruitfulness is, a, is an assurance God will often give us to help us know we're in the right direction. Over in chapter 11, Saul has his first task as king. He leads them in a, in, in a, in a fight, a battle, and God gives them a great victory. This was probably very confirming to Saul that God used him to lead his people to victory. And, and sometimes, fruitfulness, you step out in faith to serve God, and you start seeing some things happen. I mean, you start seeing lives change. The kingdom expanded, and, and God's using you to do it. And that fruitfulness can say, yes, this is the direction I need to be going. This is what I need to be doing. Instead of just wasting my life and just going through the motions, I've surrendered to God, and as I've surrendered to God, God is actually using my life. There are things happening, and those things happening can be gifts of assurance from God. I uh, heard just... Uh, uh, after the first service, we have a, a lady and her daughter that, that uh, just, they're in the Dominican Republic right now. They left to go on a mission trip to Dominican Republic, and, and it was a big step of, of faith for them to go on that trip. And, and they had a, is that a, they're at a women's conference, and they had uh, 200 women indicate a profession of faith in Christ this weekend. Isn't that awesome? You think that was confirming to them, this, this mother and daughter that, that, that you know, worked to get their resources together and take time and leave their family and go on a trip to another culture, and they go and 200 people give their lives to Jesus? You think that's confirming? You think that fruitfulness probably, probably helped them to think, hey, we're in the right place. We're doing the right thing. So God can use fruitfulness. Third, what's another assurance that God uses today? Uh, passion for a task. Sometimes when you're serving God the way he's called you to serve him, you, you, you're doing what he's called you to do, you're living in obedience, God will give you a passion. And that passion for what you're doing can be very confirming in your life. One of my favorite movies is the movie Chariots of Fire. And uh, it's a, uh, about two runners from diff two different backgrounds, two diff very different worldviews. One of the runner, uh, middle of the uh, 20th century, was named Eric Liddell. He was a great Scottish track and field star, and he went to China to be a missionary. He just lived a remarkable life. 
But in that movie, Eric Liddell uh, says, when I run, I feel God's pleasure. God has made me fast, he says. God has wired me to do this and run for his glory. And when I run, I feel God's pleasure. Have you ever been serving the Lord and you just feel God's pleasure? You know you're doing exactly what you should be doing. God has his hand on you. There's a passion. Your heart's beating fast. You're lying awake at night thinking about what's next. I mean, this is something God has given you a passion for. And God can often direct you through your passions. If you're focused upon him, he can give you a passion for the direction he wants you to go. And passion for a task can be an assurance that God is with you. And then last, any other means that God sovereignly chooses to use. God can do whatever he wants. God can give you any sign that he wants to give. But God will often graciously intervene in your spiritual journey to help you to know you're going the right direction. So the question is, okay, I'm reluctant to serve. If I start serving him, if I get in the game, will God give me the assurance I need as I serve him? The answer is what? Yes, God will give you what you need to keep on keeping on. Here's a second question you need to ask if you're reluctant to serve. Will God equip me? Will God equip me? Look what it says back in chapter 10, verse 5. Samuel saying to Saul here, Afterward you will come to the hill of God where the Philistine garrison is, and it shall be as soon as you have come there to the city that you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with a harp, tambourine, flute, and a lyre before them, and they will be prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will come upon you mightily, and you shall prophesy with them and be changed into another man. So Samuel says, this is going to happen. You're going to meet some prophets, and you're going to start prophesying. You're going to start just speaking on behalf of God and worshiping and, 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 and recognizing the spiritual leader. Look what it says in verse 9. Then it happened when he turned his back to leave Samuel, God changed his heart. And all those signs came about on that day. When they came to the hill there, behold, a group of prophets met him. The Spirit of God came upon him mightily so that he prophesied among them. Now, what's happening here? God causes his spirit to fall upon Saul to empower him for what he has for him. This is a token that God was going to give him what he needed. You see, God called Saul to a task and gave him the tools he needed to be successful. God granted Saul the empowering Spirit of God. The Spirit of God came upon him to empower him, to guide him, to lead him, to equip him to be the king. And here's a, a major biblical principle we see all throughout the Scriptures. You, are you listening? When God guides, God provides. If he calls you to service, if he calls you to obey him, and do something for him to get off the sidelines into the game. You can take it to the bank that God will give you what you need to get the job done. God will not send you into his service without the tools you need. Because here's the deal. Here in 1 Samuel 10, the Spirit of God comes upon Saul. But for believers in Jesus Christ today, guess what? The Spirit of God comes and lives on the inside of us. And 1 Corinthians 12 says the Spirit of God gives us certain gifts that we can employ to serve Him effectively. So if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, I know two things about you. Number one, 
the Spirit of God, God Himself resides in your life. Amen? Number two, the Spirit of God has, has sovereignly chosen to give you a spiritual gift. You have some sort of giftedness. God has equipped you with what you need to serve Him. So start serving and you'll see just how He's wired you for the task. God's Spirit will equip you with the gifts you need to accomplish great things for Him. So, question number two, if you're reluctant to serve, will God equip me? The answer is what? Yes, with His indwelling Holy Spirit. Here's question number three you need to ask yourself. Will God be with me? Will God be with me? Look what it says in verse 7. Samuel says, It shall be when these signs come to you, do for yourself what the occasion requires, for, I love this, God is with you. Saul, do what you need to do. Serve how you need to serve, because God is with you. God promises his presence to Saul. And we see this all throughout the Bible. Uh, I think about Joshua, when Joshua took over the reins of leadership from Moses, and in chapter 1 of Joshua, God keeps saying, Do not fear. I am with you. Do not fear. I am with you. His presence is meant to encourage him to fulfill his calling. You see, God's unfailing presence should give us unfailing confidence as we serve him. When you serve God, God will not let you do it by yourself. God has promised his presence. Think about the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter Uh, 28 verse 19, he says, Go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And then what does he say? And lo, I am with you, what? Always, even unto the end of the age. Jesus says, as you go out to, to proclaim the gospel, to make disciples of all the nations, you need to understand you're not going by yourself. I will be with you. And if that doesn't give you confidence, I don't know what will. There's no need to hide in the baggage when God has promised his presence. Amen? There's no need to sit on the sidelines when God has said, I will be with you. It's time to get in the game because when you get in the game, God will be right there with you in the game. Will God be with me? The answer is yes. Here's the fourth question to ask. Will God guide me? Will God guide me? Well, look what it says in verse 8. Interesting verse here. Samuel says, You shall go before me to Gilgal, and behold, I will come down to you to offer burnt offerings and sacrifice peace offerings, and you shall wait seven days until I come to you and show you what you should do. So Saul, you've been called. You're going to be empowered and equipped. But don't do anything until I come and, and tell you what you do next. That's what he's saying here. You see... Saul would receive God's word, God's instruction through Samuel. In other words, Samuel would come to Saul and say, All right, Saul, God told me to tell you this. And he would tell him, and and Saul would be responsible for obeying God's word to him. So God was going to walk with him as the first king of Israel step by step. God's word would provide the instruction, encouragement, warnings, and correction that he would need to be a godly king. And guess what? God guides us the same way today. God guides us today through his word. We have God's word. It's called the Bible. 
And if we will read and study and apply and obey God's word, we will go in the direction God wants us to go. You say, wait, if I start serving, I don't know if I'll know what to do. Just get in the Bible. God's word will give you the parameters and the boundaries and the instruction and the encouragement and the warnings and the reproof and the rebuke and the direction you need. Just dig into the Bible because you will be digging into the very word of God and the word of God will be a a lamp unto your feet, a light unto your path, right? As we serve, listen to me, we have the spirit of God living on the inside of us. We have the word of God before us. How can we lose? Will God guide me? Do you have a Bible? If you do, the answer is yes. He'll guide you through his word. Number five, this is big. Wait, I'm reluctant to serve. Well, ask yourself this question. Does God work in surprising ways? Does God work in surprising ways? Look what happens in verse 11. It came about when all who knew him previously saw that he prophesied now with the prophets, the people said to one another. They began to ask three questions, all right? People were surprised at Saul's transformation. Notice these three questions they asked. Question number one, what has happened to the son of Kish? So we know Saul, he's a farm, a farm boy from the smallest tribe. So what, what's his deal? He's there with all these prophets, these godly leaders that we respect. He's singing and prophesying and speaking, and, and, and something's happened to Saul. Who is this guy? We're used to him pulling a plow We're not, or, or working behind a plow. We're not used to him as a spiritual leader, and yet they see him doing this. They're, they're surprised by his transformation. Here's the second question. Look what it says there in verse 11. Is Saul also among the prophets? I mean, is he now one of the prophets raised up by God to lead? And then look at the next question in verse 12. A man there said, now, who is their father? Therefore, it became a proverb. It's all among the prophets. Notice this man says, who is their father? Why does he ask that question? This is interesting. This man recognized that if God inspired the prophets in their praise, then he was able to cause Saul to do the same. In other words, saying, listen, who gave these prophets the ability to prophesy? The answer would be God did. He said, well, if Saul's doing the same thing, God must be with him. Who's their father? Their father is God. So we should not be surprised that they're being used, that Saul is being used by God. You see, sometimes we need to remember that God is our father and he is able. This is almost like the prophet asked this question. It's almost like, uh, like somebody saying, well, you know, Eli and Peyton Manning sure are good quarterbacks. And someone might say, well, who's their father? Archie Manning. No wonder they're good, right? A little shout out to you Ole Miss fans, all right? No, no wonder they're good. Who's their father? And, and, and this man's saying, look, at no wonder they're prophesying. Who's their father? Their father's God. No wonder Saul is who he is right now because God's his father. And when you are reluctant to serve, you need to remember that God, the God of the universe, is your father. Don't be surprised if he takes you and uses you. They were surprised at Saul's transformation. And God often works through surprising people in surprising ways so that it's evident it's him at work. I love that. Over in 1 Corinthians 1, the Bible says that God uses the weak things of the world to shame the wise. God loves using unexpected people in unexpected ways. So when people see him at work, they say, that's not that person, that's God using that person. You see, that way God gets the glory, right? 
God loves surprises. Do you love surprises? This uh, past week I saw this video of a, of a young man that took his girlfriend up on a, a plane flight. He was a pilot flying a little Cessna. And uh, they're flying along, and he says to her, he says, uh, he says uh, remain calm, but the, the, the controls aren't responding. I need you to take out the emergency procedure checklist and read it to me. So, she's, so she stays calm. There's a video of it. She stays calm, and she's reading the emergency procedure checklist, and she gives one by one. She gets to the very bottom. It says, the rings are unengaged. And she kind of doesn't know what that means. She looks at the next thing, and the next thing says, will you marry me? He pulls out a ring, and, and, he, and he puts the ring, and they get, they get engaged. Now, I'm, I'm assuming that once she had time for, to recover from that and to think through that, she was probably pretty angry. That's not the kind of surprise you're looking for, right? But listen to me. God's a God of surprises. And you least expect it. Sometimes God will intervene in your life and use you in remarkable, mighty ways, ways that you can't even fathom. Because he loves to do that. So you say, wait, little old me? I mean, could God use little old me? I don't know much. I don't, I don't have that, the personality I need. I don't do this. I don't do that. So little, could God use little old me? Was well, God a God of surprises? If he is, then the answer is yes. God may choose to use little old you and little old me for his big old glory. Amen? Does God work in surprising ways? The answer is yes. I love this quote from Dale Ralph Davis. He says, we arrive at a familiar biblical contention. Yahweh frequently defies human expectations and gives the most unlikely people all they need to serve him effectively. So, he equips Saul. No matter how unlikely in men's eyes, Yahweh is able to make him able. I like that. And God's got a surprise. He's able to make you able. Let me give you one more question. Question number six. Do I trust God's timing? Do I trust God's timing? Saul was anointed privately to be king of Israel, but some time passed before God's decision was made public. There in verse 1, Samuel tells him privately, you're going to be the, the first king. And then some time passes, then, then Samuel calls everyone together, they cast lots, and, and God shows them that Saul is to be the first king. But even after the choice of Saul was made public, Saul did not immediately serve in that capacity. As a matter of fact, look over in chapter 11, verse 1. He's anointed king, and it says he goes back home in verse 26 of chapter 10, and then in 11 it says, Now Nahash the Ammonite came up and besieged Jabesh Gilead, and all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a covenant with us, and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, I will make it with you on this condition, that I will gouge out the right eye of every one of you, thus I will make it a reproach on all Israel. <laughs> here's, here's his terms. I'm either going to destroy you, or I'll, I'll enter into peace, but, I, but if I do that, I'm going to gouge out your eyes. Not much of an option, right? These Ammonites are coming to destroy the Israelites. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Let us alone for seven days that we may send messengers throughout the territory of Israel. Then if there is no one to deliver us, a leader, we will come out to you. Then the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul and spoke these words in the hearing of the people. And all the people lifted up their voices and wept. Now look in verse 5. This is curious. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen. And he said, What is the matter with the people that they weep? Notice this. He's been anointed publicly the first king of Israel. What's he doing shortly thereafter? He's plowing a field. He's not serving as a king yet. But now it was God's time. He was going to take the mantle of leadership and lead them in a great victory, an overthrow of the Ammonites. 
But notice the timing here. God had particular timing for Saul's leadership, and we need to trust God's perfect timing for our lives. I love this quote from Henry Blackaby. Blackaby says, God has to lay some basic foundations in your life before he can prepare you for the larger task. I like that. And so God may have a role for you, but you may be in the preparation phase. There's coming a time you've got to step out in faith and serve him. You need to trust God's timing. And so, six questions. Will God give me assurance as I serve him? The answer is yes. Will God equip me? The answer is what? Yes. Will God be with me? The answer is a resounding yes. Will God guide me? The answer is yes. Does God work in surprising ways? Absolutely. And do I trust God's timing? Are you ready to serve him in the way, in the manner, in the time he has for you? Are you ready to surrender all to him and let him fill in the blanks of your life? Let him use you however he wants to use you. Do you trust God's timing? If the answer is yes, you're ready to overcome your reluctance and get in the game. It's time for Christians to stop hiding in the baggage. It's time to serve him. I'm not just talking about roles in the church. I'm talking about serving him in your family, serving him on the job, serving him in your school. It's time for us to serve God, to let him use our lives for his glory. It's time. Now to close down, I want you to notice something interesting at the end of chapter 10. Look what it says in Verse 25, Samuel told the people the ordinance of the kingdom and wrote them in the book and placed it before the Lord. And Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his house. Saul also went to his house at Gibeah, and the valiant men whose hearts God had touched went with him. But, look at verse 27, certain worthless men, literally the word there, sons of Belial, sons of the devil, certain worthless men said, how can this one deliver us? And they despised him and did not bring him any present, but he kept silent. What's happening here? Everybody look at me for a moment. God says, this is our king, Saul. Some accepted that and followed him. Some rejected that decision. You know what that reminds me of? Reminds me of God's choice for the king of kings, the Messiah. God has said, Jesus, my son, is the Messiah. He is the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, Jesus said. And God has chosen Jesus to be our way of salvation. And some, just like with Saul, accept that and embrace Jesus. Some reject that and reject King Jesus. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4-8 through 8 says that Jesus is a stone of stumbling for some, but he's the cornerstone for others. Just got to tell you this. God has chosen Jesus as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, as our only hope, as our Savior. And you'll either build your life upon him as the chief cornerstone, or you'll be broken over him in judgment. But you will have to deal with Jesus. Will you embrace Jesus as the King of all kings?